Thanks for tuning into Behind the Scene, a conversation dedicated to uncovering our biases and how to navigate them in a constructive way. Hi, I'm Mark Bauer. And I'm Brandon Polk. And welcome to episode three of Behind the Scene, a weekly conversation focused on understanding the biases that are at the root of society's racial tensions. Basically, the purpose of this episode is to take the stigma away from the stereotype of the angry black person. We have this idea that civil discourse means we can't be passionate and angry, and so when dialogue rises to that level, white people use that as an excuse to disengage. But political dialogue often gets heated, and we rarely shy away from it when it's a, a matter that's important to us uh, or that we feel strongly about. It's a necessary tool that we have taken away from a large population of people who need to use their voices for expressing their grievances. And so today, that's what we're going to unpack a little bit. I'm actually going to uh, get away from this episode and give, uh, give Brandon the floor uh, to facilitate this one. But we actually have our first guest also on the podcast. And so, Lindsay, if you want to introduce, introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Lindsay Apia. Um, a little bit about myself. So I am originally from Worcester, Massachusetts. So if you hear a towny New England accent, you know, it is what it is. Um, I am a lawyer, uh, DC, hi. I, I work for DC government, working for the Juvenile Justice Agency. So I have a kind of interesting perspective on racial issues and how that affects DC at a local level. Uh, a little bit more about my background, a little bit deeper, is that I am a first-generation kid. My dad is an immigrant from Ghana and West Africa, and my mom uh, grew up in foster care. So she was on her own at 16. So I grew up in a family that did foster care, and um, my parents and family over the course of 30 years fostered almost 400 kids, which sounds crazy. It kind of was. Uh, but yeah, so... Um, you know, I'm kind of like, uh, went to Brown University, went to Georgetown Law, um, did those things, worked in corporate law for a bit. So, um, you know, encapsulating oneself in a couple minutes, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Yeah, that's really good. So this is Brandon. Um, you guys know me already. Um, and uh, it's really great to have a woman, a woman's perspective as we dive into this topic on anger <clears throat> as it relates to the black experience. And uh, I think we want to start actually by um, putting Mark on the spot again and asking him what he thinks um, when we say the words black anger. Like, what are the memories or the thoughts that come to his mind? And I'm sorry, white people, if you're listening, if he speaks for all of you today, but we're going to use that as sort of a, a, a foundation for our conversation today. But to be fair, that's common for black people to be asked what black people think about things. So that's fair. That's true. I don't think we actually have to apologize for that. I yeah. take back Mark, my apology. Yeah. What do your people back. think? Oh my goodness. I should have gotten away faster. Uh, I wasn't expecting this. Uh, so we talked in the first episode, going way back to that, uh, one of the things that perplexed me when it came to the race dialogue race talks was you know i had i was the guy who was like oh yeah my friends are a very diverse group of friends black asian hispanic latina um and so when it came to you know unpacking my biases one that like just never occurred to me was uh, was one based on race because i i had friends and we were doing life together and we you know that was my context right like um uh, and so one of the things that would perplex me is when I was sitting and watching the news, excuse me, when I was watching the news uh, and I would see images come across the screen 
with Ferguson or Black Lives Matter protests. And um, and so when I think of black anger, I, that's what I kind of think of. I think of um, I think of communities setting fire to cars in the street or vandalizing uh, stores in their community. Um, and then also, um, if you if you watch the news and you see any kind of dialogue take place, uh, you know, if you have pundits come into a, a news studio, you'll be watching and you'll see people engaging in conversation. Uh, you might have a white person, a black person represented, and the conversation is getting heated just naturally by what they're talking about, and they're they're not coming to an agreement. Uh, one person elevates, usually the, the white person, and then the, the black person matches that. And then, and I've seen this take place, like f actually watched it, and it's, it's an amazing thing to watch where the white person backs down at that point, and then they lower their emotional state. And then it's almost like a gotcha, like, okay, this is where I'm at now. Like, why why are you getting so heated? We don't have to get so heated. Why, why are you doing that? Um, and... And so, yeah, it's kind of a thing to behold. And so when I was coming up with the, the series outline and the episodes that we wanted to, to focus on, black anger was one of those that I think white people absolutely have to kind of have an understanding about before we can even proceed to some of the other things. Uh, because as I mentioned before, it is a manipulative advice to, to be able to stand back and say, um, you know, why, why are you getting so heated? We don't have to get hot. We don't have to be angry. Um, and, and not only just in dialogue and discourse, but in actual communities where protests are erupting uh, and, and things like that. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's great, Mark. Thank you very much for being on the cross for that one. A um, Couple things that the Ferguson experience, maybe the experience in Baltimore, things being seen in the media, these are pictures of what black anger is according to maybe some um, folks that are looking from, from, from the white experience or from a white perspective. And so um, I think it makes sense for us to really talk about what is black anger then, I guess. You know, um, I think for Lindsay and myself, as a black man, herself as a, as a black woman, talking about what those stereotypes mean to us. That as, as a black man, I'm constantly being, um, being careful about coming across as that black man, as that angry black, black man. And I think that Lindsay's going through something or has gone through something similar. So maybe I'll toss to Lindsay and any, are there thoughts that come into your mind on that? Maybe in response to what Mark said and. Oh gosh. Um, <clears throat> sure. Oh boy. So, I mean, the first thing is as a black woman, one of the things that um, you sort of strive to avoid if you're a certain type of black woman is the angry black woman trope, which is probably the most common of the ones that's thrown on you. And as soon as the angry black woman title is applied to you. And that can be, um, it's like a angry epithet, right? As soon as that label is attached to you, the whole thing shuts down. And so when Mark was talking about even political pundits, oftentimes what you see is if a black woman raises her voice or otherwise, most of the, the women that you see now um, who are in political punditry, I think they get slapped very quickly with the angry black mm -hmm. woman trope where mm -hmm. it's, um, why are you so upset? Why are you so heated? Why are you so these things? And that automatically, you know, as soon as people, even if they don't say it, as soon as people think you're an angry, angry black woman, everything else that you say is going to be discredited. And so, you know, I say for me, um, I've learned that I can be angry maybe, but I don't have 
um, the there's not a space for me to express that publicly. Maybe I express it amongst other black people, but if you're a mixed company, you definitely suppress that emotion because if I want to, people to hear me of other races at all, then I have to um, almost pendulum swing against being the angry black woman. I have to be the most reasonable person in the room mm -hmm. um, because that is not seen as a, a positive thing no one's like oh she's got righteous indignation no it's you're an angry black woman what are you so angry about well gosh many, so many many things, things but, so many things being but that's not an emotion that's available to me um at least to express in most environments because yeah. i'll be discredited immediately yeah i think i think it's really interesting and something that comes to my mind right now is you know a, a couple months ago with maxine waters um you know where she was calling you know for um, all of her constituents, you know, if you see someone from the Trump administration, make sure that you like disturb them and, and everyone sort of hopped on her in the media and said, you're calling for violence and you're calling for that, you know. Now, let me say, I'm not going to get into a discussion whether I'm going to condone Maxine Waters or not, but her presentation could have been seen by many white people as being very angry, very hostile, very volatile, right? And the first thing that happened is that people called her out for it and, and, and said, uh, you know, you're, you, you've gone too Far. You've taken it too far. And then I wonder if the reaction would have been the same if it were a white woman operating with that kind of volatility or that kind of leveling, you know? Well, I think there's multiple levels to that because one, I, I think about like right now in this environment we're in, when you watch the panels that have black women on, when they'll have like a black woman and then, you know, a conservative pundit who might be saying something kind of absurd and offensive, as soon as the black woman raises her voice or otherwise and goes sort of boy by, the, the um, <laughs> male will do something to shut her down, to interrupt her otherwise. I think that's true with white women too. You, you've heard this, but I think it's even more so with black women because maybe by demeanor or otherwise, it's like, oh, this is going to be an automatic shutdown. And so what I've learned to do is that's not going to be a way for you to get anywhere. So... You know, we can talk about Ferguson and all of those things, but those are like the deluge after being subjected to a drip of water for years. Like if you are mm -hmm. constantly subjected um, to drips of water mm -hmm. and you tell people the water's dripping and nobody's does anything, eventually something, a pipe's going to burst and you're going to be like, now I am under a, you know, a fountain of water and you're upset. Or you're like, well, what are you upset about? because I told you for years that water was dripping and now you're responding um, as if, you know, I didn't, you didn't see it or I didn't say that. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And so like, what are you so angry about? It's not about, yes, like you have Ferguson and you have Baltimore and you have these inciting incidents, but you know, you hear about microaggressions. If you're, if you can never get ahead, if you're constantly struggling, if you know that people view you as a criminal because of your skin color, and you're always sort of on guard, then yes, you might have a buildup of anger that in a triggering event comes out in a way that's not as constructive. Me as an educated black person, an educated black woman knows that's not available to me. Um, I have to be like the good black woman. Yeah, I, I think like, it's a really no good point. No one listens. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And I, I say I feel the exact same thing, um, or at least very similarly as a black man is being the educated person, being the responsible black person who has to be the one to build the bridges, who has to be the one to actually bring white people together with black people in order to 
perhaps bring about some unity in this whole mess at some point. But I think that's really a lot to ask of a black person who has also been dealing with the deluge, right, of water dripping on himself or on his family or in his family line for hundreds of years, perhaps, you know, when we say that something is happening, something's happening to my family, something's happening to my legacy, um, my, my kids are being killed, my family is being stripped from me, fathers are going into prison and they're being away from their from their kids. I mean, there, there are a whole lot of symptoms that are going on here, especially within the Western world. We see a lot of this happening. So what are we supposed to do as people in our position is we're constantly caught in the middle, but we can't necessarily like expect that everyone else um, who's not in a position in Washington, D.C. like we are to have um, or, 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 or that they need to have that kind of restraint, right? Like who is telling them that they have to? And I think um, if we went back to 1960s when Martin Luther King Jr. went into Watts and the riots were breaking out in Watts in California, there was a whole group of African-American people who hated Martin Luther King Jr. and his nonviolence philosophy at that point. He was the last person people wanted to talk to. He was the last person people were actually looking to as a leader. Not that they didn't believe in what he was saying, but that deluge that you're talking about, Lindsay, had just come on them and they were like, I am so tired and I am so fatigued. I am so angry at not being listened to that I am willing to burn down this neighborhood just to get someone to listen to me. Now, that may not seem rational to a lot of people, and it isn't rational. I think we have to stop seeing it as rational because if someone were like... It's emotional. Cutting, I mean, it's, it's, it's completely emotional. emotional. If, if someone's like, if, if, if my leg is caught in a, in a trap, like a wolf, <laughs> um, like wolves, the first thing that they do when their legs are caught in traps is they gnaw the foot off. You know what I mean? It's not rational. It's reactive. And to expect that after hundreds of years of pain and aggression and oppression, that everyone is just supposed to be so rational, more rational than the white people who were oppressing you in the first place, then that's sort of an unfair, it, um, that's an unfair pressure to put on anyone. Um, so, um, I can I say one thing? I don't even expect, like, I sort of um, stray away from the oppression language because as soon as you use that, like, it feels very accusatory to white people. But I think, you know, one thing that people can relate to if they thought about sort of the police bru um, brutality instances as men, if you were constantly pulled over for doing nothing as a white man, right? You just know from the time you're 16 years old, this is gonna be your experience, that you have to be perfect. You have to do everything perfectly in that moment. Um, how would you, would you ever get to the point where you just were like, this is so annoying? Or if you're followed around stores, right? And you're like, I'm in this stupid store. Like I, you know, I see you following me around. W would you as a man ever get to the point where you're like, this is just so disrespectful that like today, I just don't feel like being respectful because it's I'm having a bad day. Like, yeah. can you understand that? I'm having a bad yeah. decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that, yeah, like, so for me, I can I can relate with this because I've encountered manipulative people, right, in my in my life, whether it was ex girlfriends or uh, former bosses or whatever the case is. You encounter manipulative people all the time, and uh, so for me, yeah, absolutely, I can relate to that because I've. I've encountered it where you have that kind of bro who is maybe on your sports team who's just kind of a, a pain in the butt and uh, and does these little things like you know just pokes you and pokes you and pokes you until one day you're just like okay I, you know I, I can't deal with this anymore. That was actually the case in you know a, a friend of mine now in high school 
uh, he would, he just did that. And like, he got on my nerves in high school and on our soccer team. And one day I just, I couldn't take it anymore. And I lunged at him in the locker room. I just went after him. Teammates separated us. And then after we got that out though, we were, you know, we were bros for the rest of our, our school years. But, um, but yeah, no, that I don't have to think that hard to find an example in my life where multiple examples where that natural reaction exists. No, and I think that what I'll add to that is I really appreciate that as an entry point, you know, for someone who is white, you know, who maybe has experienced that. I can draw some empathy from that. And um, and I think, you know, Lindsay, to your point in terms of the oppression language, I completely agree with you. I think that whenever we're talking about oppression or whenever I'm talking about oppression, it's not as a slight to white people, but it is talking about the construct. It is like what has been keeping people from being able to respond and react and have the autonomy to be able to do what you did mark to be able to actually look at a person and attack that person and then still make up with them see we didn't have that as black people we didn't have that opportunity to actually say in 1693 when we were first taken on that middle passage brought over here to say you know what i don't really like this and i'm just gonna lunge at you real quick and but it's gonna be all right we're gonna make it all right it's all good we're all human we're all friends no that didn't happen you know so we have to we actually had to abide because we were being colonized we we're being forced into that situation and then perpetually forced and then if you ever challenged it then you were met with more aggression with more fatal aggression and then again and then decades later and then decades later and not being able to retaliate except for these bursts you know like of outright aggression you know where where people were running away slaves were running away or or or, or there was a revolt of some kind you know and then what would happen to those people to those slaves right they were being slaughtered they were being killed they were being hung um and tortured in the worst kinds of ways now 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 think about it in the context of today that if i as a black person have stories of my ancestors being treated that way and i haven't yet had the opportunity to uh, to to express that emotion right and especially if i can tie the way my experience is now in this country to the way that they were treated and i didn't and i, and I still don't have an outlet for being understood, for having that aggression be understood. I'm not, I'm not condoning burning down CBSs or burning down neighborhoods. I don't think that's what any of us want. I don't think that's what black people want. That's not, and you can see that in the news too, if you ever actually, like when people can look at some of the, some of the reporting around those events, you'll find just as many black folks in those neighborhoods saying, why are you doing this? These are our neighborhoods. These are our families. Why would you do this to, to us, the people that live here in this neighborhood, right? So there are just as many, more so, more so, voices that are against it within the black community. And then there are those isolated people who are, who are, who are operating out of such anger. Um, here again, not to condone it. They, they have to take responsibility for it too. But we have to enter into a place of understanding so that we can begin to strategize around what we can do to help people, what, what we can do to help communities of color, what we can do to help our connection point with each other, black and white. And this is not an easy thing. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna take a heavy uh, amount of confrontation on both sides to really start dealing with this. I don't really, so I, I sort of come at things a different place because I, I think that I try to enter into the, the minds of white people as well. And I can understand where you can talk about structural violence and all these things that came as a result of historical racism or slavery. That's really hard for people to connect with. Like, wh I can see where they'd be like, listen, you did not know your, your ancestors in 1600, so you cannot tell me you're angry about that, right? Like that's, so there's different sort of viewpoints, I think, on that. For me, 
I'm, I'm like, you don't actually have to go back to to slavery. Like, you can look at, like, Flint, okay? Like, you're like, Absolutely. I haven't had clean water in, like, three years. Absolutely. Our kids are coming up. Right? And you know it's because we live in a black neighborhood, a black city that y'all are like, mm-hmm. have not fixed our pipes, you yep. know? And we're here boiling water in the United States of America, like, three years, four years, right? Like, those yep. type of things where you're like, um, our kids in Baltimore, in Baltimore, they did not have heat, so the kids were wearing winter jackets into school. In school. These are type of things where you're like, you do not care about me. Like, and that's not a slavery issue. That's And it, there might be things tied to that, but you're like, these structures or things, I, I feel like I'm constantly running up a down escalator, trying to get somewhere, Right, and then you're gonna come in here and like do one thing that sets people off, and that's sort of black anger. Like if you, I think some of it is just children act out when they don't know how to express any other emotion, right? Like what it usually comes out as some sort of a temper tantrum is what it looks like because you're like frustrated, exhausted. You know, those are usually the two main things, right? Like you're trying to express something that you don't know what to do about or any sort of real seemingly constructive things so what it looks like is anger you're like why are you throwing yourself on the floor like why don't you communicate with me you know how to speak you are four years old you know what I mean but that's what it looks like right where it's like frustration and exhaustion that's to me what that looks like I say that cohort people then extrapolate what they see in like a Ferguson or um, Baltimore and they allow that to to be um, representative of all black people and so now we don't even have to engage on the issues because look at that that is nonsensical behavior That's true. Um, and so now we don't have to engage it because why would you act that way and you're like there might be some legitimate underlying things that we could talk about here but you're allowed now to look at the temper tantrum and not even ask why You'd ask your two-year-old why they're acting that way. But... Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's the, 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 the actual point is that when it comes to black anger, then there's a shutdown point, right? So if there's an expression of that anger that does not fit in to the construct, into the construct of white America, then there's a shutdown point. We're not going to talk about why Michael Brown got shot. We're not, we're not going to talk about the, the nuances of that situation. We're not going to talk about... Or not even just Michael Brown, because he's these people become indicative of what's been going on in a community. Uh, They're certainly. like, oh, yeah. geez, it's just one more. You know what I it's mean? It's just like, one more. But but then to, to your point, it's like we don't get to the point of actually talking about those issues because then some of the media representation shuts down the conversation for white people who are still holding some of the cards on having the conversation. Like we need to have a conversation with them in order to create some solution around the issues. And if we're shutting down the, not we are shutting down the conversation per, per se on, on, on purpose, but we are <laughs> because of what's going on, because of the representation, right? Like it does shut it down. I think that's your point. But but the question is like, is is that even just? And is that even equality? Should we even have to deal with that? I think that's where some of that anger comes in. No, of course not. But the thing is like human beings are human beings, black, white, or otherwise. And we're often looking for things that reinforce what we believe to be true anyways. Right, so if I'm like, oh, white frat guys are this way, and so like I'm just looking for you to do one thing that proves that you're like an, you know, like a jerk of a white frat guy, right? Like you might not actually be that, but you do one thing, and it's like, see, why why are you looking at me like that, Lindsay? Like uh, I'm not (laughs) a. Oh, I don't know text with the backwards calf and yeah, and I I think that's right. And so people are looking for that with black in those situations as well you're like see that is like that behavior look at see it reinforces these ideas and then you don't have to actually do anything because 
nobody really wants to actually do anything. Well, I think like, that's a really interesting point. I mean, like if if someone, I mean, all of what you're saying is like, okay, let's be sensitive as black people to the white reaction, right? Like, let's be really sensitive to that. I mean, that's part of the discussion we have to have. Also, is like if we're like, yeah, but they're tender. Well, white people are tender, but black folks are tender. We're tender no, too. No, listen, we were, we are. We're tender but... in a different way. We're tender in a different way. Oh. We're not tender. I mean, like we'll still get angry. Yeah, we'll still yeah. get angry, but we're tender. That's how you know we're tender because we out sure, here. Sure, sure. But I, I think that you know, uh, yes, you hear me being very sort of sensitive to white to white people, because the reality is this: that um, if I want to work, part of the reason I went to such good schools was because I was like, I need in order to legitimize myself as much as possible. I recognize the the tick marks that are against me. I I see the see the writing on the wall. So I have to do as many things. I have to, you know, excel so that, um, you know, people can't just automatically discount me. I was very cognizant of not being seen as maybe they're going to think I'm a teenage mother. Things that you think about when you're black, right? Um, you know, and a lot of that was done because I'm like, if I'm going to actually have any impact, then people have to be willing to engage with me. And so that means, yes, I do have to be sensitive to your hypersensitivities and i will tell you at some point you're being hypersensitive but at the same time if i am unwilling to acknowledge your hypersensitivities and respond to those i'm not going to have any outlet to talk to you and that's why i say as a black woman the anger might be what is available to many black to many black women but i promise you the educated black woman's like how can i avoid being seen as an angry black woman because as soon as i'm seen as that Anything else that I say will be discounted. That's yeah, it. Yeah, no, I think that that's definitely the risk, and I and I experienced that similarly too. And I mean, a good example, you know, that I can give personally is, you know, when the Charlottesville events happened, and you know, Black Lives Matter had a representation there. You know, I had a 16, 17 year old friendship. You know, a white um, person that it called me. I'd known for a long time. One of my best friends, and called me and sort of facetiously asked me, "Well, what is with this Black Lives Matter thing anyway?" And I said, well, interesting. Um, do you mean the movement or do you mean like the concept? <laughs> you know, um, of course, Black Lives Matter. And then he says to me, well, I just don't think we should be elevating one color over another. And I think this is really interesting that this is the conversation I'm having with a white person, a friend of mine who's telling me this, his black friend. And the reason why he's saying it to me is because I've had so much time being sensitive, right, to all of the potential pitfalls that I built a rapport. And because that rapport is so strong, he feels like he can ask me anything. Now, at the right moment, I say this. I say, in the 16 years that you've known me, how many times have we had a conversation on race? And he says to me, none, not any. Why is that? And I said, let me tell you why. The reason is because I figured it would take me 20 years to build a strong enough rapport with you in order to tell you what I'm about to tell you right now. It's that you don't even know how much you are holding in not aware of dealing with bias i don't want to call you i don't call people racists but i will say there is a racism underneath all of this where you would even say to me you're a black friend who you are completely completely naive to the fact that maybe i might identify <laughs> with the concept of black lives matter considering the fact that i am also black you know and it didn't even cross his mind because he assumed that because i was black but conservative and christian 
that my blackness was less important, that my black that my blackness didn't hold as much weight, especially um, within the concept of what was going well, on. Well, he, right he, 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 he doesn't even see you as black. He doesn't even see me as black. He doesn't even see it. He doesn't even see me as black. That's right. He doesn't even see He doesn't even see me as black. That's yeah, another good point. But that's one of the things that yeah. we have to do in going back to that's last, magic. last episode in, in understanding whiteness is that white people just, they and even back to our first episode where we talked about for the last 40, 50 years in white households, there's been this kind of one-sided truth that's existed. Like I didn't grow up cognizant of race, like right? Like I was told grow up in a world colorblind, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to see color. And so, but then what comes with that is that you don't see the realities that come with that, right? And the context that comes with that. I don't see the context, or I didn't growing up, I didn't see the context that came with my whiteness and being white. And then as a part of that, I didn't see the context that came with being black, right? I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I guess, sensitive to that. You, you guys talked about being sensitive. And so, Lindsay, actually, you, you also mentioned being sensitive to being in conversations and how you have to kind of check those emotions and I think that what white people have to do is they they have to give uh, they also have to be kind of sensitive to the fact that maybe they like watch how you respond because you can only check your emotions so long before they they show they show up right like there's boiling overs um, it's just natural you're not going to be able to be perfect 100 percent of the time and so what white people have to do is they have to if they recognize that you know a conversation is getting heated and their first reaction might be to to say oh you know i'm getting i'm getting a little concerned here things are getting heated like let's bring it down a couple of levels instead of doing that recognize that it could be a little manipulative and uh and give black people the space to to air their grievances with all the emotions that come with being human the thing that i mean in the whole thing that sort of undergirds a lot of these is maybe this idea of like the whole thing is kind of dumb like this idea of right like that because we have more melanin right like that we there's all these things that aren't available to us that there's all these things and i mean it's fundamentally kind of stupid and so there's some anger built into that naturally it is stupid isn't it? you know like you're just kind of like this is super dumb whatever but um you know like even when you're when you look at it that way you're like well why would you be angry because because i have more melon and all these things are closed to me or like it's just mm-hmm. harder or i'm the one you know the only person you know of color you know of any color in these environments that aren't comfortable and i'm always having to like contort or or you can't get ahead at all right, right. just because like you're in environments that you're starting behind like you you just got the right to vote you know (laughs) like you know so it's taken time but we're inherently selfish people and so you know people aren't overly invested in making sure that your community catches up and so you're you're hustling all the time those things are exhausting and that's why i say a lot of anger i think is is really more exhaustion and not really knowing what to do right because a lot of that eruption is lower income Right. And so the things that you see in lower income people, then you impute that to all blacks. But the fact is, what is their avenue? Right. Like they don't have political power or anything that that white people have, like represent representation. Look at 
the, our power structure, right? Like you, maybe your interests are represented, maybe they're not. Like you're sort of yeah, you kind of in this catch twenty two. You're like no one cares about us, right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, they talk a lot about black women caping up, right? Like lately, we're like running for office, all voted for Hillary. Why? Because that's what black women do. Like I don't have the luxury of being like I'm in my feelings right now, right? Because if black women go in our feelings like it's going to be a spiral a spiral out because we are the bedrock of our community the black community and then we have to cape up because we are americans as well um (laughs) so you know i mean the range of emotion becomes smaller yeah the range of emotion is smaller and then black women are definitely carrying a lot of the weight um you know and y'all are trying to listen to us well, no, I mean, I guess not. I mean, I'm trying to listen to you. I mean, I'm fine, but my black brother's in jail. So I'm trying to figure that out too. So, you know, so I think talk about anger, talk about fatigue as a reactionary thing or as the thing that's causing the expression of anger, um, I think is actually fine that that fits with a psychological profile, you know, or even a social um, community psychological point of view that totally fits, you know. And I, I think... Um, you know, what do we do to sort of move this this kind of topic forward, you know, is what is this thing that we haven't touched on around black anger, right? Which is the presumption of anger or the presumption that anger will be the response in black people, which I think is a lot um, or is at the root of a lot of black shootings, is that if there's a confrontation, then there is not only the pre- pre- the presumption of anger, but the presumption that that anger will result in violence. And that if violence then occurs, or if it's going to occur, then I have to, as a white police officer or a law enforcement person, be more on guard with you than I would with someone else or someone that is not of color. And I think that um, even if you're not angry as a black person, like I don't know if Lando Castile was angry, you know, I think he had a gun, but I don't think he was angry. I think he was trying to be compliant. If I'm looking at what was happening there on the video, it seemed like he was being compliant, but definitely didn't seem like he was angry. But then the police officer was scared, maybe at what would have been or what could have been in his mind said, black anger. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? Well, just black who's, people are scary, okay? Like the bottom line is like generally we're sort of viewed as scary people for whatever reason. Like, and so, I mean, we just are like, so there's this inherent um like fear one of the things that dc has done so i work for dc government right is um you see less of the police brutality issues and police shooting issues in a lot of the major cities right Right. why is that because in like the 70s they were very very intentional about diversity both of gender and of race so if you look at the metropolitan police department there are it's a very diverse police force and what that means is they're not naturally going to look at every That's person right. that they see, every per- black person, as potentially some sort of perpetrator, because that'd be like looking at themselves as perpetrators. Right. That's why it's, you know, when we talk about sort of identity politics and things like that, it's not about diversity just for diversity's sake, but it does infuse a culture, right? The more you have experience with people who are different than yourself, it infuses your culture. That's and right. so you don't see here in, in D.C., Police are able to disarm pretty serious um, situations here. They very rarely discharge their weapons. And it's because even when they're in these situations, they're not viewing everybody as potentially fright- frightened so or frightening. So they're not like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, this person could go like ape on me, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like there's this way in which sometimes black people are treated like animals. 
and then act like animals. Mm -hmm. People sometimes react exactly how you expect them, right? Like they live right down to your expectations. So you're expecting them to erupt. You've brought in the riot police. So like, let's give you a riot. We're going to do this up. Like, let's do it big. Yeah. It's actually, uh, I read several years ago that there was a, like during soccer matches, riots tend to occur, right? Like it just gets kind of raucous. But what they found was that when they sent in the riot gear and the police to like oversee the crowds, it elevated the emotion. And so people, exactly like you said, they saw the riot gear and then they responded because that's what everybody was expecting to fight. The police were expecting to fight in the riot gear. And then that caused uh, the emotion, the crowd's emotion to, to meet that. And so that psychology is fascinating to me, that's, that's sociology. So what they found instead is instead of sending in riot gear police, they sent in just plainclothes people and uh, they didn't encounter those kind of uh, those kind of riots. So uh, they were really able to, to manage crowds better that way. Um, I don't know what do we do from here. Uh, we're kind of coming up on time and I feel like we've kind of, yeah. there's, there's so much more we can talk about. There is but. so much we can talk about. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things we can do for here is we try to leave everyone with a bit of a call to action um, on the subjects that we're talking about is one of the number one things we always say is find someone that looks different than you and have a conversation. Be intentional about it. Ask them questions. Ask them about their experience. If you're black or white, but in particular, if you're a person of color, if you're black or brown, and say, hey, I don't know what this means for you personally. And I think that one of the things we have to be really careful to not do is to generalize black people or generalize white people. We have to be really careful to um, to really know and, and to affirm that each person has their own story. And my story obviously is different than Lindsay's story. Our experiences are different as black people. There are certain commonalities, there are things that we understand, and there are things, Mark, that I'm sure that are common you know, to the white experience, but your experience is also different, where you grew up, your, your, your siblings, your family, things like that. So we have to be really intentional to make sure that we ask questions about what people are thinking and what they're feeling, realizing that no one is an expert on any um, on, on any cultures like experience when it comes to anger, when it comes to police brutality, or when it comes to um, how we perceive race or generalize other people. So we have to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think in terms of this conversation on anger, um, I, I think goes back to what Lindsay was saying earlier is that diversity is really important thing to sort of fix this problem. You know, that if you see someone um, that you might have some bias towards, but they look like someone that you're working with, you're going to think twice about how you treat that person a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You're going to think twice about what it means to um, look at one of your um, uh, children that are in the neighborhood that don't look like your children and wonder whether or not you should play with them or not, or whether or not you should let your kids play with them or not if you're working with someone of the same color um, who has children that look like that. I think that that's an, an important part. So this goes back to your question of how do we be really intentional about making sure that we diversify our own lives and be, and be really upfront about that. And I think, too, so what I said, going back to the temper tantrum analogy, if we sort of look at people as imperfect and not always having the best responses or otherwise, but that they're human beings and maybe looking past some of the behavior and asking, like, what are you really trying to say? Right. Because somebody has to be the bigger person. If sometimes the bigger person could be the white person, that would help. To, that would take away some of the exhaustion just being like you're clearly acting out mm-hmm. asking people like why and not being so resistant to really uh, to listen why and be mm-hmm. like that would be frustrating you know like if mm-hmm. I was in that I can I can hear that mm-hmm. maybe we would get a little further and sort of um, also don't impute that everything is anger just because someone's louder like some of it is some cultural um, competency that you know um 
colloquialisms that black people use or we have a certain energy. My sister-in-law is Italian and I have a yeah. Puerto Rican sister-in-law. They're loud. They're not mm -hmm. angry. They're loud. It's loud. Right? And so don't automatically assume anger. Engage beyond what's comfortable for you. And so I think those two things, recognizing some of the acting out is, is like symptomatic of something else and look at it like that. If my two-year-old's acting out, I'm not going to write off my two-year-old is bad. I'm going to say, what are you trying to like something's under this like mm -hmm. what help me understand what do you need um yeah. and that i think would go a long way like just um you know like not making assumptions about what that is yeah yeah does that I, make sense yeah no i think that those are hugely helpful um and i think you know from my perspective too uh, if you don't have, you know, if you don't have black friends or you don't have, you know, a, a dialogue that you can engage in right now, one of the things that you can do if you're still kind of wrestling with this is just ask, when has been a moment in my life where I've exhibited frustration or I've been angry myself and kind of work backward to see what was the root of those, the, the cause of that anger, um, and then put that, uh, project that onto what other people might be experiencing who aren't like you and who might be dealing with a lot more on a daily basis that uh, that you don't have to walk walk through yourself so uh, or can I just say one thing even if yeah. you don't have people personally there in this day and age one of the beautiful thing about media is there are a lot of stories being told and really instead of just logging on to social media and looking at like 280 characters or whatever listen to some of the stories in a way that you can actually if you like film listen to watch films mm -hmm. like just you know, sto I think stories help to yeah. tell the story. Yeah. So find Absolutely. some other people's stories in each of those situations, whether it's Ferguson or whether it's just generally or Flint or, or whatever, yeah. and really like try and engage with that story. You don't have to know right. people personally. Sometimes right. it's hard to. Yeah, no, just, I, know, I think that's a friends. that's a great that's a great tip. Uh, get on Netflix and uh, and just start flipping through some things. So YouTube, uh, YouTube, yeah. Uh, so thanks for being here, Lindsay. Thanks, Brandon, uh, for uh, facilitating this one. Um, we are going to leave it with that. I think that was really good. I'm excited to share this one, and we will be back next time. Uh, topic TBD, but I'm sure it's going to be just as invigorating. And we look forward to uh, seeing you then. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Scene. Just a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are strictly that of Brandon's and mine and do not reflect that of our employer. Uh, and then second, if you enjoyed this content at all, we'd love it if you could like it and subscribe. And then of course, if you think you know anyone who would benefit from this content or would like to engage with it, please share it with them as well. And we will see you next time.